one of the things I've learned in life is that it's, it's hard at times to go back home. If there was a place that, that you once lived, maybe it was the place where you grew up, and you're gone for a period of time, and then you try to go back, it can be difficult to go back. Uh, it, it might be difficult because you've changed, and it seems like everyone else is the same. Maybe it's difficult because you feel pulled back into old patterns or uh, old drama or the things that you had tried to leave behind. And I know for many people, they just don't go back home. They leave a place in the rearview mirror and they don't ever move back towards it. Well, today, as we continue our series through the Minor Prophets, we're going to talk about the danger and the opportunity that are present when you go back home. We're in a series uh, called Relentless, and we're talking about how God pursues his people through this section of scripture that's often overlooked and underexamined called the Minor Prophets. We've been in the series for almost the whole summer, and we wrap it up next week. Uh, so for those of you who are like, when are we going to get out of the Minor Prophets? We're almost there. At the end of, the, at the end of next week, we'll be, we'll be finished with this journey. But it's been, it's been fun for me. I will tell you that there has not been a single sermon that I have ever preached, but most especially in this series, that hasn't first preached me before I preached it to you. And so I've taken a lot out of this series, and I hope you have as well. Today, we're diving into the second to last of the Minor Prophets, and his name is Zechariah, and I want to introduce you to our friend today. Zechariah is a really common name in the Bible. Uh, you'll, if you've been familiar with the story of the Bible at all, you know that the father of John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. His name is Zechariah. Some scholars say that up to 30 people in the Bible whose names are recorded uh, have the name Zechariah. But the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And we're going to see uh, about what God remembers and what he calls his people to remember today. Uh, Zechariah was a priest and a prophet. He came from a, a family of priests. He will see in his lineage, we'll see in the books, people mentioned who were also prophets, who were father, grandfather to him. When we know when the book of Zechariah was written, it was written after 520 BC because we know that Zechariah talks about the people returning from exile. We know that happened after 520 BC. And Zechariah was a contemporary of Haggai, another prophet that we covered just a couple weeks ago. So as I mentioned, today we're talking about going home, and in the message, here's the big idea. It's hard to go back home without going back to your old ways. It's hard to go back home without going back to your old ways. If you have a Bible this morning, a physical one or a digital one, I want to encourage you to open up this morning to the book of Zechariah. We're going to start in the first chapter today. If you're new to the Bible, I encourage you to turn and look for the book of Matthew. And then two books before that is the book of Zechariah. It is the longest of the minor prophets which is a good opportunity for me to say thank you to a couple guys, three guys actually, Tim Jacobs, who spoke two weeks ago while I was on vacation, and then Pastor Josh, who wrote a sermon, but as you just heard, had, had COVID, couldn't deliver it, Pastor Clovis, who delivered it. I will say that I learned something through this process, so uh, I didn't plan out my vacation before I planned out this series, and last week, Pastor Josh slash Clovis got one page of Haggai, that was all they had, uh, 
Tim had two pages of Zephaniah, and I left myself the longest of the minor prophets. So I just was going to say that I've learned my lesson, and I'm going to give them the hard stuff next time and leave myself the easy stuff. But uh, I'm really excited for what we have to explore in the book of Zechariah today. And because this is God's word, I want to invite you to stand with me as we go through this first section. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can just follow along on the screen, whether you're here in the room or you're watching at home. Beginning in verse 1, this is how Zechariah begins. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, who was king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says, return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. We pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would open our hearts that through this message you sent to your people over 2,500 years ago, that you would speak to our hearts today. And as we get excited and step into familiar places and familiar patterns, that you would show us what we need to reclaim and what we need to leave behind. In your name we pray. Amen. We can be seated. Today, as we go through the book of Zechariah, and we're going to do so at a fairly aggressive clip because we've got 14 chapters to get through, there are five different invitations that as I studied the book of Zechariah, I saw God extending to his people that I think he's also extending to us. Five invitations he's opening up to us today. And here's the first one. God offers us this invitation where he says, return to me, don't just return to your old ways. Return to me. Don't just return to your old ways. Now, the people of Israel had to be excited when they heard they could finally go home. They had been in exile for 70 years. They had left their home in Jerusalem. They had been taken to Babylon by the Babylonians. Eventually, the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians. And the Persians are much more open to them returning to their land. And so they finally get to return. Some of the people were probably very advanced in age. They had been small children when the people were exiled. Now they were very, very old and they were going to make this long journey. Some of them had grown up in Babylon and they dreamed of going back to their home. And you have to believe that this, this idea of going back home was a gift. It was exciting. But Zechariah tells the people that this is not just a gift, it's also an opportunity. An opportunity they need to pay attention to, that there are some challenges and maybe even some dangers within. God is very excited about his people returning from exile, and they are excited too. But God begins through Zechariah this book with a warning that says, Yes, return from exile, but no, don't return to your evil ways. And the reason why the book begins here is that God knows that as the people return to the place where they once lived, all of the same temptations that faced their ancestors, their parents and their grandparents, are going to be available to them. 
all the same temptations that led the people down the path that ended up in exile are going to be available to them. And so he's, he's warning them, hey, don't just get excited about returning to your home. Your focus should not be returning to a place. Your focus should be returning to me, coming back to me, coming back into relationship with me, making a fresh start and a new beginning, not going back into the past. And the same thing is, is available to all of us today. After the last 18 months of craziness and chaos, there are many of us that are excited about going back to normal life, going back to normal places and patterns and experiences. But I just want to encourage you that we use the word normal, I think, in inappropriate ways. Just because something is normal doesn't mean it's good. Just because something is normal doesn't mean it's healthy. Just something is normal doesn't mean that it should be adopted or sustained. If you can think back to your life when, when you thought Corona was just a beer company and not an infection back in February of 2020, there are some things about your life that were normal, but they weren't good. There's things about your life that were normal but they weren't necessarily healthy. There were some things about your life that were normal, but they weren't leading you into deeper connection and flourishing with God. That there were times when people would ask you how you're doing, and you'd say, oh, I'm busy. And, and that isn't always a good thing. You'd say things like, oh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed. And many of us have sanitized our memory, the way we've sanitized everything else in our life over the last 18 months, and we have forgotten all the things that were a part of our normal pre all of this that we should not readopt. And so while many of us are hungering for a semblance of normal and comfortability and control after an incredibly difficult period, I just want to remind you that not all that is normal is worth returning to after all. And normal isn't always a guarantee of good, healthy, life-giving, God-honoring. And so as you reflect on the opportunity that is opening to us to return to normal, in the same way God spoke to his people then to say, hey, don't return to your old ways, I would say to you, don't return to your old ways. Be more thoughtful, be more prayerful, be more intentional, be more reflective about what needs to be a part of your life and don't just take it all back. Sift through it. Take some and leave some behind because the danger of going back is that you go back to your old ways. Here's the second invitation that God offers his people. He says, let me show you how I'm at work. Let me show you how I am at work. It's always difficult when you've been in a dark season, when you've been through a time of difficulty to see all the ways and places that God has been at work. And the people of Israel have been in captivity in a foreign land, not allowed to leave for 70 years. And as they're preparing to return back to their land, back to their home, into freedom, God wants to show them and remind them of a larger perspective. And the way that he does this is one night, Zechariah goes to bed, and during that one night, he has eight different visions. These visions span 
Zechariah 1.5 through the end of Zechariah 6. There's a lot of stuff here, and I'm going to try to summarize it in short order. We could spend eight weeks just on these eight visions. But these eight visions are what God shows Zechariah to teach him things to share with the people. And we're going to run through these eight in order. The first vision that Zechariah has is he sees four horsemen that leave from one space and they go to the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. And the purpose of this vision is is to remind the people that God is sovereign over all and there is no corner or area of the entire earth over which God doesn't say, mine, and I'm in charge. He's reminding his people that he is sovereignly in control of everything. But the second vision is is the other half or other piece of that truth that the people of God are are opposed. The rule of God is opposed. And and that is symbolized in four horns that came from four animals that defeated the people and conquered Jerusalem, Judea, and Israel. These four horns are eventually removed by a craftsman. And it's the symbol that though these people... God's people were conquered by these foreign nations, God will defeat those foreign nations and deliver his people. The third vision that God shows Zechariah is of a surveyor. Now in our day that happens digitally, but in that day it was through this tool right here uh, that was used to measure lines. And, And in that vision, a man shows up in Jerusalem with his tools to survey the city with a measuring line to build walls. But God says a day is coming when Jerusalem won't need walls because I will protect her and she will be safe. The fourth vision that God shows his people is of a a priest. We'll dig into this one specifically in a second. But it's a priest and a branch and it's this symbol that God is going to begin again what he started through King David. He's going to begin a new branch and a new line and he's going to bring a Messiah. The fifth vision is of a lampstand, and this lampstand is not extinguished, and it's this reminder that God is able to fulfill and complete every one of his promises, that everything he says he does, and every promise he makes he keeps. Now, if I had been living through these visions like Zechariah did, this next one would have probably put me over the edge. It's, It's this vision of a flying scroll. I want you to imagine a billboard you drive past on the highway. 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. That's the vision that Zechariah has. A scroll the size of a billboard flying through the air. This is the point in the night where I think Zechariah was wondering, did I have some bad goat last night? Did I drink too much wine? What was going on? But this flying scroll is a symbol of God's will and God's truth. And and God shows Zechariah that God's blessings only come through following God's will. That if you want the blessings of God, you have to walk in obedience to the ways of God. The seventh vision is of a woman in a basket. Seems a little bit bizarre, but the, the woman is a symbol of Babylon, the land they're leaving behind. And God calls his people to leave behind the ways of Babylon and not bring them with him to cleanse them along the way from their sin so that when they return, they come back to live according to the ways of God, not the ways of Babylon. And the eighth and final vision is of a group of four chariots kind of bookending the four horsemen at the beginning and another reminder that God is sovereign over all. 
Now, at the end of all this, Zechariah wakes up. I'm assuming with bloodshot eyes, after a rather restless night of sleep, going, what was all that about? But he writes it down, and we have it today in Zechariah 1 through 6. And I think what God was trying to do for his people was to lift their perspective from their circumstances to a higher level. You know, one of the beautiful things about living in Prescott is that you can get above the city. A short drive and a hike up Thumb Butte, a hike up Granite Mountain. For some of you who live up in the mountains and in the hills, you end up where you are and you have a larger perspective to look down on where you were just a short time ago. And many of us, we find ourselves in circumstances where we're so close to things, we don't have perspective. And yet when we step above and go somewhere higher, we see what, we're, what we were in the middle of and where we once were very differently. And what God's trying to do with his people is to lift their perspective and say, hey, you guys have been so close to this for so long that you've forgotten how I am at work and I am doing things and I am moving in places that you don't understand and see and I just want you to know that I'm at work and to remember that you can't always perceive it. See, so often what happens is that we find ourselves in circumstances that overwhelm us, that leave us anxious, that leave us torn apart, that leave us with a sense of God's not doing anything. God's not at work. This is not going well. I was thinking as I was writing this message earlier this summer about what happened my first summer in Prescott. I moved to Prescott in July of 2016. And as soon as I arrived, I began to battle anxiety. Almost every night for several weeks, I would find myself as soon as I laid down, it was as if my body said, it's time to rest. But somebody had opened my mouth and poured a six-pack of Red Bull down my throat. I was, I was wide awake and anxious even as my body was crying out for rest. And I, I can't tell you all the source of the anxiety. I don't really know where it came from. All I knew is after a couple days, I began to dread the sun going down. Because I knew that anxiety was on the way. And during those restless nights, I wrestled with God, I pleaded with God, I begged God for sleep. And it was during a, a season after that time, which eventually ended, that I stumbled on a quote by Victor Hugo, who said, go to sleep in peace, God is awake. Now this quote didn't solve my anxiety, it didn't send it away, and I've since wrestled with anxiety again. It's an on and off battle for me. I don't have all the answers and I haven't figured it out. But what I have discovered is that for me to sleep, either on a day when I have anxiety or on a day that I don't, I have to surrender control. If you have to always be in charge, if you have to always be in control, you will never go to sleep. Because sleep is the final act of surrender. But when you go to sleep, the truth is God's awake. And he's sovereign. And he's in charge. And he's at work in ways that you don't see. And God was trying to tell his people, hey, you may not see it. You may not perceive it. But I'm at work. I told you one of these visions we're going to dig back into. And we're going to do so here in Zechariah 3. Where Zechariah says, Then God showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. 
And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who's chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Verse 5 says, Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. The third invitation God gives his people, and I believe he's giving to us, is let me make you new. This was the, the vision of the high priest and the branch that we spoke of earlier. And, and in this vision, Joshua the high priest is standing in the temple, but he's not alone. Zechariah sees Satan standing next to him. Now, Satan is a, a person we meet throughout the Bible. He is the enemy of God. He is a fallen angel. He is in rebellion against God. He is opposed to God. He's the manifestation of everything that works against the way and the will of God. But one of the things that Scripture tells us that Satan does is that he accuses us. In the book of Revelation, God calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And one of the things Satan does most commonly in the lives of those who follow Jesus is that he accuses us. Literally, he shames us and condemns us for all that we have done wrong. And so right now, Wherever you are, if you're here in the room or you're watching online, I want to encourage you to close your eyes. And with your eyes closed, I want you to think about those things in your life that are places or have been places of shame. When you hear a voice in your head that shames you or condemns you, what does that voice bring up? What does that voice say? What does that voice tell you? What does that voice point to? With those things in your mind, I want you to open your eyes. Now, I'm going to need a partner for this part. Johnny, would you come up here? Did not plan this. Did I plan this, Johnny? Totally unrehearsed. Totally unrehearsed, okay. So, Johnny, you're going to have the gift of being Satan. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, I just want you to imagine, yeah, that you are Satan, and, yep. and I am Joshua the priest. And, and while you're looking at me, everybody in the room, everybody watching online, I want you to imagine all those things that you just thought about. All those things that are the source of your shame and condemnation. And I want you to imagine that Johnny is standing next to you, like Satan is standing next to you. And I want you to pretend to be whispering in my ear. Not sweet nothings, we'll save those for Janet, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but just whisper, yeah, yeah. whisper in my ear. Okay. Okay, whisper, okay. And I want you to imagine that Satan is whispering in your ear. Yes, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the things I hear for sure. And, and the reason why Satan is whispering these things is there's a reason to condemn Joshua. If you have your Bible open, it says that he's, he's covered in filthy robes. 
The Bible's, I think, a little bit more graphic than that in the Hebrew. The real meaning of that word filthy is a combination of excrement and vomit. So we're looking for an emoji. This is the emoji for that. And the things that you feel shame and condemnation over are real things. And the reason why Satan's whispering those things is he's drawing on real stuff. Okay, thanks, Johnny, for helping. I know, you're off the hook. You're off the hook. And the truth is, Satan takes things that have happened or maybe are true, and he sees those things, and he uses them to accuse us and condemn us. But that's not what God does. I love how Pastor Chris Brown says it. He says, Satan sees our sin and accuses us, but God sees our sin and he chooses us. And so what you see in this vision is Joshua has reason to be condemned. He's in the temple, a holy place with sin and uncleanness. And God steps in with Satan whispering voices of condemnation and accusation. And he says, this is my son, Joshua. Take off his filthy robes and put clean ones on him. I am making him new. And that is the exact same thing that God wants to do for you if he hasn't already. See, Romans 5, 8 tells us that God proved his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the gospel is not clean yourself up, then you come to God and step into his presence. No, the message of the gospel is that God saw you with all of the things that could shame or condemn you. And in love, he forgave those things, cleanses those things, and makes you new. The message of Christianity is not of a self-help, clean yourself up, pull yourself by your bootstraps. It is the one who knows you better than anyone else, saw you at your worst moment, took you and made you clean because he loves you. That's the invitation God is making to you today. Let me make you new. You can keep trying to make yourself new. You can keep listening to the voice of shame and condemnation. Or you can take all those things, bring them into the presence of Jesus and experience him making you new. But we're not done yet. There's more. In Zechariah 7, there's another invitation. It says, now the, now the people of Bethel, who had stayed in the land during the exile, they sent Sherazar, Regamelech, and their men to plead for the Lord's favor by asking the priest who were at the house of the Lord of armies, as well as the prophets, which is why Zechariah heard this, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we've done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Ask all the priests of the land and the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and seven months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? And then he continues down in verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord of armies says this, Make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. 
The fourth invitation that God gives his people through Zechariah is consider the why behind your worship. Behind everything we do is a why. There's a reason, a motivation, something that is the the spark for why we do what we do. And here, after the people had gone into exile, they had begun fasting for one month, 30 days, to remember why the people went into exile. And according to Zechariah 7, even the people who remained in the land observed this fast. And so as the exile is ending, the people come back to the priests and the prophets and say, hey, should we keep doing this? Should we keep fasting? And what Zechariah says to them in response is, why have you been doing this? What's the purpose behind it? Not why your ancestors started fasting, but why are you still fasting? And it seems that the reason they were doing it is because they'd always done it. And that's a temptation for all of us to end up in a pattern of behavior, to end up in a line of actions and steps, not for a good reason, but because we've always done it that way. And one of the places this plays out most often is the church. Why do we do what we do? Well, it's because it's what we do. It's a circular reasoning. And and what God is saying to his people is the reason why you did this is worth examining. And this is a message, if you've been with us in this series, that God has come back to again and again. When it comes to worshiping him, because you've always done it is not a good reason. And because we've always done it, if that's the why, inevitably it will corrupt the worship. We saw this at the beginning of the series in the book of Amos with our friend Jeremy Jernigan. Where, where God spoke to his people and said, the kind of worship that I detest is the kind that leads to injustice. In, Ma- in Micah 6, we saw the prophet Micah say, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. In Isaiah 58, hundreds of years before Zechariah's book was written and his prophecy was given, People came to Isaiah with a similar question. Should we continue to fast? Should we continue to pray in this way? And Isaiah speaks to them harshly. And he says, don't keep fasting and praying if you're going to just turn and walk away and live unjustly, carry out corruption, and do evil. He says, the kind of prayers you pray when you live that way literally won't get off the ground. They won't make it to me. What God is saying to his people is don't be like your parents and your grandparents. Break the family pattern of worshiping and then living differently. And friends, this is the same temptation we face today. To do one thing while we are here on Sunday morning and then live the other 167 hours very differently. When I was a a teenager, my my favorite band was a band called DC Talk. And they released their their number one album they ever did as a band was this album called Jesus Freak. And uh, one of the songs on the album starts with a a recording of a a, a sermon that a man named Brennan Manning gave, who went on later to be one of my favorite authors. And, And Manning said, you know, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who walk out the door of the church and deny God by their lifestyle. They worship, 
but then their lifestyle is radically 180 degrees different than their worship. He says, an unbelieving world simply finds what they say unbelievable because of the duplicity and hypocrisy. Now, let's be honest. None of us ever perfectly live the songs we sing on Sunday. I have never perfectly applied one of the hundreds of sermons I've given as a pastor. But when that gap between what you sing and how you live, between what you preach and what you do, between what you profess and how you treat people, stops being a place of brokenness, contriteness, repentance, and humility. When your heart heart becomes hardened to that and you're no longer bothered by that gap between your worship and how you live, That's where Zechariah is speaking to his people. And he says, you need to ask yourself why. If you're continuing to come here on Sundays and make this one hour radically different than the other 167, I would say to you what Zechariah said to the people, why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? And an unbelieving world finds our words unbelievable when the gap between our words and our lifestyle grows bigger and bigger by the day. Consider the why. And that's why Zachariah says, so if you're going to worship me, then make fair decisions. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the orphan, the resident alien or the immigrant the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. This is true worship. Not in the walls of the church or for them in the walls of the temple. True worship plays itself out in how we live, how we treat people, and what we do when we think no one is looking. Worship is not just the songs that we sing or the events that we attend. It is the way we live all of our life, not just one morning of our week. And that's why Zechariah repeats this pattern that God actually despises worship that produces injustice and evil. Worship isn't good if we like the things or if it's then at a volume that's acceptable to us. Worship wasn't good because we felt a certain way or we walked out with a certain vibe. Worship is good based upon the response of God because he's the audience of worship. You're not the audience. He's the audience. And he says worship that's unacceptable is the kind that produces injustice and evil. So at the end of the day, maybe we don't know how worship is by noon on Sunday. Maybe we know what worship is and how it was by noon on Monday or noon on Wednesday. The final invitation from Zechariah comes in chapter 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. The fifth invitation is to look to Jesus and not yourselves. Look to Jesus and not yourselves. 
The, the, the latter part of Zechariah, chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14, all center around two events. They center around the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. If you know the story of Jesus, then that passage we just read from Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 should ring a bell for you. It's a prophecy about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And, and some of the things that happen in Zechariah 9 through 14 describe events that for him were in the future, but for us are in the past. The coming of Jesus that's described in your Bible in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so in some ways, the book of Zechariah describes what is our past. We're kind of beyond that book. But Zechariah also speaks prophecies in this section of the book of the second coming of Jesus of his return to make all things new, of his return to fully defeat evil. And so in some ways, we're kind of standing with bookends between some of Zechariah being in our past and some of it being in our future. Between some of us, some of it looking back on Zechariah and some of us looking forward on Zechariah. Zechariah, when it ends, is in a very different tone than other prophets. A couple weeks ago, Tim preached through Nahum, and he preached about the judgment of God. But Zechariah talks about the peace that God brings. But it's very specific. It is not a peace and a message of hope and a light that comes from the people. It comes from Jesus. This is just where I want to encourage you. I've tried every week in this series. I've done it imperfectly, but it's been my intention to end every one of these messages in the prophets by pointing us to Jesus and not ourselves. Because each of these prophets was looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. And, and our struggle as 21st century Christians living in America is to take the message of the Bible and to fit it into the mold of our culture. And that mold is self-help. If you could go into a bookstore today in person, and there's very few of those around still. I ended up in one this past week. I was on vacation, and I ran out of books to read. Didn't take enough books. I went to a bookstore, I bought more. My wife was like, why are you buying more books? We have enough books. I said, don't worry. The ones I've already read, going back to the library, the ones I'm buying, are going to a used bookstore, I'm done. Our shelves are already full, I know. But if you go into a bookstore, one of the biggest sections is self-help. And we live in a, in a world that is a self-help world. You need to make yourself or better yourself or improve yourself or care for yourself or manage yourself, but it is a self-centered, self-oriented, self-hopeful world. That is completely and radically different from the message of Scripture. If you read the Bible and you get self-help, you're reading it wrong. The message of the Bible is not look to yourselves, it's look to Jesus because if we could have saved ourselves, Jesus would not have had to come. As followers of Jesus and believers in the gospel, our hope is in him. But he invites us to partner with him. I love how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for your salvation, but work it out. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. So we are following Jesus. We are working out our salvation. We are putting it into practice. But both the will and the power to do that are coming from God. 
The strength is coming from him. The will is coming from him. The power is coming from him. And yes, we are taking steps. We are taking actions. But those things don't save us. Those are outcomes. (laughs) Those are outflows. Yes, following Jesus, as some have said, requires effort. But it's not something we earn. Dallas Willard once said, the gospel is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And that's why before we close the message, I want to remind you that there's a big difference between getting religious and getting right with God. Sometimes we read through sections like Zechariah, often in the Old Testament, we go, man, okay, I need, I need to get religious. I need to get back on the train. I need to start doing those things again. And there are practices that do help you cooperate with what God is doing. But there is no practice you can do that makes you right with God. The only thing that you can do is put your faith and trust in what Jesus did that you could not do for yourself. And as we continue to go through the minor prophets, each week I want to remind you that we are not getting religious here. The concern of each of these writers is that we get right with God through what God did for us, not what we do for ourselves. And we're going to celebrate that in a little bit with communion. But before we close, I want to tap on some next steps. And here's the first one. I want to encourage you to review all five of these invitations that we've gone through here and determine which one do you feel like Jesus is extending to you today. So of these five things, which one do you feel like is the one that, that is specifically being extended to you by God today? Which one seems especially relevant for where you are in this moment? Number two, I want to encourage you to read through that related passage of Zechariah and meditate on those words. So what was the passage associated with that specific invitation? Take note of that, read through that, and meditate on those words. Number three, I want to encourage you to accept the invitation and to invite Jesus to transform you in that area. The invitation means nothing when it's extended. It has to be accepted for it to be experienced. And then number four, I want to encourage you to expect to discover a step of obedience that will stretch you and take it. When God invites you into something new with him, one of the things you can always know is it will take you new places. And when God takes you somewhere new, it means he's taking you away from comfort. He's taking you away from familiarity. He's taking you away from the things that are safe and familiar into something new. And I've discovered like you have in the last 18 months that what God has for us is gonna stretch us. And when he calls us to follow him in obedience, it's always gonna take us someplace we've never been before. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for how you are at work in our lives. And we thank you for speaking to us through a section of scripture that many of us have never been in. As we return to some familiar places, some normal patterns, I pray that you would reveal to us through your scripture, through prayer, what are the things that we need to leave behind? Just as you called your people to return to you and not their old ways, I pray that you would help us to not return to our old ways either. 
that we leave behind the things that were normal but not life-giving. We leave behind the things that were normal but not healthy. We leave behind the things that were familiar but didn't actually lead us into a deeper relationship with you. And we pray that the invitation you're extending to us today wouldn't just hang out there, but that we would accept it. We look to you, Jesus, both the author of our faith and the finisher of our faith. We can't make ourselves the people you made us to be. Only you can. So show us how you want us to live. Show us what you want us to do. Give us the power and the strength to follow you. In your name we pray, amen.